to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. My guest today is Sean Quinlan, an attorney and a Democratic candidate for Pennsylvania State Legislature in the 87th District in Cumberland County. The focus of our conversation is on a tremendous initiative that Sean has been spearheading over the past few weeks called the Stitchers Corps of Central Pennsylvania, which consists of several hundred volunteers working together to make masks for healthcare workers and citizens across the mid-state. It is a tremendous example of Sean's leadership during this difficult time and shows the true power of grassroots organizing. Before turning to our conversation though, I want to take a second to discuss what I consider to be a monumental development that occurred last night. A week or so ago, a federal court in Wisconsin agreed that Wisconsin voters should be given an extra week to submit absentee ballots for today's primary election. The court reasoned that due to the pandemic, this would give folks who had submitted an application for an absentee ballot extra time to have their voices heard and their votes counted in today's election. Last night, the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision with all four liberal justices dissenting overturned that ruling and prohibited Wisconsin voters from submitting absentee ballots for today's election. The backstory here is very important and reflects at a much deeper level the severe flaws in our democracy today. It's a story that dates back to 2010. Thanks to a Republican redistricting majority project, the Wisconsin legislature was controlled entirely by Republicans. At that time, they worked to guarantee their control by gerrymandering the state so effectively that in 2012, the Republican Party lost a majority of votes, but still took 60% of the seats in the state legislature. With both chambers under their control, they proceeded to pass a strict voter ID law that reduced black and Latino voting in the state, resulting in 200,000 fewer votes in 2016 than had voted in 2012. As we all know, Wisconsin is a key battleground state, one that Trump won by only 23,000 votes in 2016. Recently, there has been another effort to purge about 240,000 more votes from the rolls. It's due to a system that dates back decades called voter caging. What the legislature did was send letters to registered voters in the state, largely voters in districts that voted for Democrats in 2016, and they decided that those who did not respond to the letters would be removed from the voter rolls on the basis that they must have moved. Initially, this purge was supposed to happen in 2021, after the election. But a conservative group sued to have the votes removed earlier, and a conservative state judge, Paul Malloy, agreed, and he ordered it to be done. That decision has been appealed to the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, which is now deadlocked over the issue by a vote of three to three. On today's ballot in Wisconsin is a contest for the final vote on that court. 
the Republicans desperately want to reelect their candidate, Justice Daniel Kelly, who recused himself from the voter purge pending the election. Trump, last night, tweeted his endorsement of Kelly, who certainly will uphold the purge if he is reelected. The election was originally scheduled for today, but the pandemic has changed everything. A stay-at-home order went into effect in Wisconsin on March 25th, and more than a million voters have requested absentee ballots. But this huge surge means that the state is running behind and thus hasn't been able to actually deliver the ballots. Meanwhile, roughly 7,000 poll workers, most of them volunteers and most of them elderly, have said that they would not come to manage the election, causing a number of polling locations to close. The city of Milwaukee, whose 600,000 people normally would have roughly 180 polling locations, will now have five. Milwaukee, like most urban metropolitans across the United States, tends to vote Democratic. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat, tried to get the Republican-dominated legislature to postpone the election, or at the very least, to mail ballots to all voters for a May 26th election deadline. The Republicans, of course, refused. Over the weekend, the mayors of Wisconsin's 10 biggest cities urged the state's top health official, Andrea Palm, to use her emergency powers to replace in-person voting with mail-in voting. On Monday, the governor signed an executive order postponing the election until June 9th. But once again, the Republicans challenged the order and the Republican-dominated state Supreme Court blocked it. Last Thursday, and this brings us to the decision that the Supreme Court made last night, a federal judge permitted absentee ballots to be counted in the election so long as they arrived back to election officials by April 13th. Again, though, Republicans challenged the decision. Last night, in a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court refused to permit this extension of time for the state to receive absentee ballots, arguing that the federal judge had made a mistake by changing the rules of an election so close to its date. The upshot of this decision is that absentee ballots have to be postmarked today, even if a voter hasn't gotten one. The court insisted that the decision was made on a narrow ground and had nothing to do with the larger question of voting rights. The four dissenting judges staunchly disagreed. Writing for her liberal colleagues, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote that, quote, the court's order, I fear, will result in massive disenfranchisement. The majority of this court declares that this case presents a narrow technical question. That is wrong. The question here is whether tens of thousands of Wisconsin citizens can vote safely in the midst of a pandemic. Under the district court's order, they would be able to do so, even if they received their absentee ballots in the days immediately following election day, they could return it. With the majority's stay in place, that is, with the Supreme Court's order now in effect, that is no longer possible. Either they will have to brave the polls, endangering their own and others' safety, or they will lose their right to vote through no fault of their own. That is a matter of utmost importance to the constitutional rights of Wisconsin citizens 
the integrity of the state's election process, and in this most extraordinary time, the health of the nation. This crisis in Wisconsin has national implications. The re-election of Judge Kelly to the Wisconsin State Supreme Court will likely mean that Wisconsin loses another 240,000 voters, most of them Democrats. This will certainly increase Trump's chances of winning the state in 2020, and Wisconsin, of course, is likely to be key in the Electoral College. This is why politics is so important. We had our own gerrymandering scandal in Pennsylvania. In fact, my opponent in the primary election, Eugene DePasquale, voted for the unconstitutional gerrymandering bill that gave Republicans complete control over the state legislature and deprived Democrats of equal representation in government for the better part of a decade. But through gerrymandering, through these insidious forms of voter suppression, we have put ourselves in a situation now where the Supreme Court can decide with one order who does and does not get to vote, even during a pandemic. Now more than ever, we have to make sure that our civic engagement remains at an all-time high. We have to vote. In Pennsylvania, we're fortunate now to have an opportunity to submit an application for a mail-in ballot in advance of the June 2nd primary. If you haven't already, please take the time to do that. It takes two minutes and will ensure that we have our voices heard in the upcoming election. We have that link available on our website at briarforcongress.com under the election info tab at the top of the page. So take a second, fill out that mail-in application, and then come back to hear our next true neighbor, Sean Quinlan. All right, I'm here with my good friend, Sean Quinlan. Sean, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, brother. My pleasure, brother, be. So there's a lot I want to talk to you about. You've been, um, as a candidate, I think probably the most engaged person I know in terms of being a, a resource for folks during this pandemic. Um, it's been amazing to see what you've been able to get off the ground in just a couple of weeks. But uh, before we dive into that, let's just talk a little bit about your background. Can you tell us um, more about yourself and where your inspiration to run for office comes from? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a political nerd. Um, uh, avid political book reader and history reader, but originally from Scranton, Pennsylvania, went to law school here at Widener and uh, ran for state senate in 2004 against Advance. And that was kind of a sobering experience. You get to see what a you know, honest, diligent, true public servant can do for her community. She did. Uh, I was running as a Democrat then, and I'm still involved, obviously, I'm running again as a Democrat. But I learned so much from that experience, what was possible uh, by way of someone who was truly personally invested in her community, which Pat always was. Some of the best speeches I ever saw politically were done by Pat Vance. And they weren't, you know, barnstormers, but they were just so honest and sincere and open and that was her to a fault, uh, both in office and on the trail. She was lovely, gracious, kind. Uh, there was also a man in the community, his name was John Broges, out of Carlisle, who was a practicing attorney. 
represented Carl Carlisle District. I don't know what that is. That ninety second. Yeah, I think so. In any event, he hung out his shingle. Korean War broke out. He took in his shingle and volunteered and enlisted and went and fought in Korea. Flash forward a few years, war breaks out in Vietnam. He does the same thing. True citizen soldier, practicing attorney, super nice, gracious, kind man. Uh, and he was my mentor. Uh, so here I am, as far as I'm concerned, I was done with politics until 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. By then I was growing more and more concerned. I have two young children with school violence, specifically shootings. So by the time the 2018 race sets up, it was Valentine's Day of that year, 2018, that the Stoneman Douglas shooting happened, which left me uh, simultaneously paralyzed and energized uh, that this was not something that I could tolerate as a parent, the level of gun violence and specifically the threat to my own children. So that was what was the impetus to really uh, throw in all in in the 2018 race. And then obviously I didn't win. We lost by seven points. Ran again for DA this past year, lost again. And I can't uh, fathom the notion that nothing has been done and simply losing the political contest um, turned me from continuing that fight. But here we are the, uh, in this moment where it's it would take a worldwide global pandemic to make me think about something other than school shootings. But as both of my children are home from school and with me in this very house right now, naturally the bigger threat is this pandemic. Just kind of a long answer to your question. No, it's, uh, I mean, I'm, the first time we really got to know each other was at a uh, Moms Demand Action rally at the Capitol. Um, you know, stood behind Governor Wolf. Um, and, you know, we've been friends ever since. I saw how powerful your passion was. And to see it transition now to a pandemic, I wasn't surprised by, but still nonetheless inspired by, because you seem to identify very early on in this process that a shortage of masks was not only likely, but almost guaranteed. And yeah. so you and I talked, I guess this is probably early March, about what could be done about it. And before I knew it, you had already decided to launch the Stitchers Corps of Central Pennsylvania. Um, you know, I think maybe early on, um, I'm sure there were a couple of people who looked at that and thought maybe it was premature or unnecessary. But Good fast one. forward two weeks, and now there are 500 volunteers in that group. And you're getting orders in droves, not only from folks in the area, but from healthcare professionals themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to launch that in the first place and what the initial steps were in getting it off the ground? Yeah, you know, I, um, my brother's a physician in Gettysburg and my sister-in-law is a certified registered nurse anesthetist in Baltimore. So, you know, while I was talking about the school violence thing, I was thinking of my sister and my brother-in-law and my family members who are teachers. And as this thing is creeping its way around the world, I'm thinking of my loved ones. And I hate to, you know, that it was a purely, my God, these are, this is my family. I can't be in the trenches. I can't work in an ER. I can't uh, 
run a ventilator, but I can, not unlike you know the citizen organizers in World War II, we're not running a, a rubber drive. We're not rubbing an al uh, aluminum drive, as they used to call it. We're not running um, drives for citizens to make personal sacrifices, but not unlike Rosie the Riveter, we need masks and we need people who know how to make them. We can make these. And there was, ironically, the, the impetus for this for me was Gandhi. How so? Gandhi, Gandhi turned to the people of India and said, make your own clothes and throw off the shackles of British oppression. Homespun, what it was called. So one of the biggest images of Gandhi was that cloth that he wore. And that cloth that he wore was called homespun. And the people of India, that was a way to throw off chains of oppression of the British government, was to make your own clothes at home. And it wasn't so much that we're throwing off chains of oppression, but we do need to rise up collectively and defend our doctors and nurses and CNAs and CRNAs and CRNPs and everybody else who's in the trenches. This has been done. An entire nation did rise up and literally make its own clothes. And this is the kind of thing, this is not the time, in my opinion, to cast about or blame as to why these resources aren't here, but we must internalize the fact that those resources are not here. The PPE is not here sufficient enough to protect the quote unquote soldiers who are in the trenches, which is our healthcare professionals. So that to me, the other thing that was happening because of what I'm doing is people were saying to me, I'm not being protected at work. In fact, they're threatening to fire me if I bring in my own N95 and wear it at work and protect myself, which I had to unpack. So I have, you know, I have this person, CRNP, just like my uh, sister-in-law saying, I need to protect myself. I'm intubating these people, you know, staring down the barrel of a gun with this, whoever's breathing at me. And I don't know what is inside them that could kill me and therefore take it home and kill my family. I need to wear something more than a surgical mask. They are threatening to fire me if I do so. And, you know, I'm unpacking, well, don't they have N95 masks there anyway for you to wear? Answer, no. Okay, and if you bring your your own in, what do they do? They send you home. So your job is in jeopardy. But the threshold question was, why aren't there masks there? And then I'm asking my, you know, I have a lot of people in this world. I'm asking them, is this true? Are you not allowed to wear your own N95 mask? And the answer was yes. 100% we're not allowed to wear them. 100% they're not available if you choose to seek one out while you're at work. Which I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. But the one thing I can do about while I harangue these facilities is procuring masks. And so what has the group been able to do so far? How is it, I mean, it seems like it's really uh, expanded a ton in the past couple of weeks. What is the, um, what kind of progress have you made? All right. So within, I think the last time I saw you, we were sitting on somebody's back porch and we did one of these. Yep. And I think within three days, we jumped over 105 people. Wow. And how long ago was that? Two weeks? Two and a half, three? Yeah, about two and a half weeks ago. 
So now we are over 645 people in the group. And approximately 350 of them are stitchers. And mm -hmm. let me unpack that a little bit. So the 350 are stitching. The rest that runs the gamut from hospice workers, nursing home workers, rehab, uh, you know, inpatient rehab facilities, individuals, and institutions. So we're getting institutional orders from hospitals. We're getting institutional orders from hospitals where they're asking us to keep their request anonymous, hmm. which is mind-boggling. You know, part of that, you thank yourself that we're able to provide this, and on the other side of it, you're thinking, "What God's name is going on here? What have they been doing? How have they been dragging their feet? What is the..." What went on here as far as money and resources and how is some lawyer in Camp Hill able to see the need, but these facilities were not? Have you gotten any factual insight as to why that's the case, or is it anybody's guess at this point? No, I haven't, and I, I'm not sure I would ever be satisfied at this point with the answer because it, the fact remains that they're asking me, they're direct messaging me for 500 masks at a pop and giving me specs as to what they want in those masks, what they want them to consist of. Wow. So they'll say, okay, I need 500 of a certain size. I'll say 500 of a certain uh, filtration. They want to filter. They don't want to filter. They want a pocket for a filter to be inserted. And there's a, there's a lot of things just from where I'm sitting because I've got these individuals who came to me first begging for these masks, right? To which I turn to my stitchers and say, look, there's no money that's going to change hands here. We're going to give these to people. We're going to procure the equipment vis-a-vis -vis the sewing machines or needle and thread, whatever it may be, and the materials. And we're going to turn them around, turn them around and push them out as quickly as possible. Gratis, right? However, these facilities have budgets and state grants and federal grants and insurance companies that compensate them. And they are in the same pool with my stitchers asking for bulk orders in the hundreds. And when we do that, that means one of our individual providers is going to run the risk of either being deprived of that PPE or it's going to be slowed down. And our goal was to cover them and protect them first. So we're kind of reaching a zero-sum game here. And we have to ask ourselves, what's 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 our priority? You know, is this if I am I going to give this bag of homemade masks to an executive to sit on? Are they going to hold these in reserve? Meanwhile, deprive my individual providers. Um, it's an extremely disconcerting position, but it's that's that's what I'm up against right now. The, how did we get here, and why is going to be a post-war inquiry? worth discussing, but right now we're just trying to fill the orders as quickly as possible. My answer to my team on this question has been, we, we don't really have the luxury of turning away anyone because we're in the business of saving lives. What I need to do is recruit more stitchers. I need more on the team. However, that needs to be done. I need more people stitching. Is this strictly a volunteer effort? How are you, are you 
fundraising to provide the materials? I mean, how, what's the uh, actual that's operation the, look like? That's a total. Yeah. So the operation is uh, 100% like a starfish management type thing. Um, there is no money changing hands whatsoever. It's 100% voluntary. Well, wow. however, as word is getting out, people are asking if they can donate to which we were saying, no, 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 we're not really configured for, for that right now. This isn't an established nonprofit. Um, I'm not sure who I would give the money to at this point. We have so many people spending their own money and resources, including me, um, that I'm like, it, it creates a, its own problem. What do we, what, who, who do you make the check out to? It's not appropriate for them to make it out to me if somebody else is arguably spending as much, if not more, that I don't know about because we don't ask. You know, the people we we posted to the page how many masks we need, of what kind, and then the order is filled. And they mm -hmm. ping they ping back to us and say, yeah, they're ready. Come pick them up, and that's what we do. So there's no. You know, like I said, man, this is two and a half weeks in. So no, there's no there's no bank account. These damn banks are locked. Can't even go in and open an account. Um, there's no fundraising. There's no money changing hands. I personally have purchased filters to make filter material to go into the masks repeatedly. Um, other people have purchased elastic and shared that with the group. Other people have purchased materials or had materials on hand that they donated back into the group. So, so far it is just a, uh, do what you can do as much of, of it as you can. Sean, how has this affected your campaign? I mean, obviously, this work sounds time consuming. It's obviously important, but you're also yeah. running for office. You have a primary opponent, you know, running for office is difficult and requires raising money and getting your name out there. Have you um, tried to do well, a balancing act here? Or have you donated yourself totally to the response effort? Yeah, the um, at, at, not unlike what we're seeing with the economy, everything is interwoven. The campaign has become um, almost 100% devoted to this district work, which is to say, I'm not sure I would have it any other way. I mean, what else would I do? If you believe in public service, this is your chance to serve. And it's not a chance to put on a show of service, it's a chance to actually serve. Um, that to me is the highest and best use of resources that have been, you know, the, you learn things as you campaign, you learn about organization, and raising volunteer armies and deploying them where they're needed and getting a, a campaign where it needs to go. And as far as I'm concerned, almost everything we're doing is happening inside my district anyway. These people are all in the 87th. I can't any longer go knock on doors, obviously. I can't any longer do town halls. I can't any longer do the things that were consistent with the traditional campaign and what I'm hearing people refer to as the before times, because that's simply not possible. So I'm, I'm thankful that I have an opportunity to serve, frankly. I mean, uh, the entire thing that we're doing is one of the most rewarding things I can think of. I mean, I'm not sure how else, aside from actually being in the hospital, this feels like the best thing I could be. You're running against a Republican incumbent. What's he yeah. doing? And what would you be doing 
differently or even in the same way if you were in office right now? Um, the uh, short answer is I don't know what he's doing. The only thing that I, I see him do repeatedly through social media is encourage businesses to either directly stay open in contravention of the governor's order or seek waivers from the governor's stay-at-home and uh, essential policy. Get yourself declared an essential, whatchamacallit, so people can come to your business and you can stay open. And just even this past, in fact, it was yesterday, he posted a video of his daughter suggesting that uh, people go ahead and go to giant, go to stores, just bring home the stuff. So kind of this quasi stay at home function where you deliver to your at risk community, deliver to your older people, hmm. deliver to your immunocompromised people. So it's this, uh, I find it extremely casually reckless just telling people to, you know, this isn't that big of a deal. We don't need to do this thing. But to answer your question politically, I'm not really sure what he's doing. I don't know if he's run fundraising. I don't know if he's, I have no idea what he's doing other than really personally ticking me off because, you know, I'm suffering right along with everybody else. Every small business owner is suffering. We don't need to hear from this guy why we should throw away all the sacrifice that we're making just to make, you know, these certain businesses uh, be more reckless with our lives. Honestly, that's how it feels. Um, no, it does I, sound like a, I mean, it's a wanton disregard of public health to yeah. openly sidestep the advice from healthcare experts and the governor. Um, yeah, which is because, what got us here in the first place. Exactly. I'm keen to point out, listen to the experts used to be like a throwaway line. And now it's like, no, 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 no. That's how we got here in the first place. Circle back, repeat. Rule number one, listen to the experts. It's like, it's a very, I can't believe it has to be repeated so often. No, there's been, I mean, look at the White House. There's been a death of expertise in this country. Um, just the very idea of education is ridiculed by uh, our, pub our public officials nowadays. Trump was calling public school, government school a month ago um, yeah. as a dog whistle to it being some sort of, you know, uh, stain on society. Um, yep. I, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on, like, obviously we have a long ways to go here before we come out the other side of this, but eventually we will. And um, I think what you're seeing right now with the Stitcher's core is in many ways, the silver lining of a crisis, which is people coming together and responding to adversity in a really optimistic and hopeful and meaningful way. But at the same time, the veneer has been stripped off society of any semblance of equality um, from insufficient protection equipment for healthcare workers to uh, the economy with you know 10 million people filing for unemployment in the past two weeks um, to healthcare being tied to employment so that we don't have adequate services for people. I mean, there's a lot of really structural flaws right now that I think are being exposed in a very drastic way. Um, yeah. You know, you're running for office, uh, assuming you win, which I, I'm confident that you will, you're going to be in a position to have to build the new society um, that is looking at how we can prevent something like this from happening again and learn from it. Um, yeah. Where do you see us going after this? 
you know, I hope we would um, return to our democratic roots. I would hope that we would return to the, the New Deal, FDR, where we came from, ironically or not ironically, post the Great Depression, post World War II era, where we learned a thing or two about the suffering of our fellow man. You know, we learned that we had to, as a society, invest in our young people, get them a college education rather than saddling them with a lifetime of student loan debt, that Medicare for all was the goal, that Medicare by itself was a stopgap measure before we could expand that to everyone. That was a reason that we watched so many tens of millions suffer and starve and commit suicide in the Great Depression, that we need to circle back to our democratic roots, our better angels, and say, yes, uh, we invest in our young people. Yes, we take care of uh, each other's illnesses at our peril. Failure to do so is at our own peril, which is writ large now. This, the poorest among us now is represents the health of all of us. If that poor person contracts COVID and walks around for two weeks, coughing on things and touching things, it puts all of us at risk. Whereas before we could have tested the person, gotten care, sequestered them personally, taken care of them, and now the rest of us wouldn't be as sick. There are so many lessons to be learned from this, but I would hope that um, among them would be returning to the roots of capital D democratic values where we take care of one another uh, as a priority for government, not a secondary, maybe if we get to it, safety net, social safety net thing, where, you know, we'll, we'll fund it as at a minimum and, and shame those who would call upon the resources of government. That's where we are now, where if someone needs government assistance in any form, they are to be shamed, mocked, and ridiculed and you point at their boots and say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. There, there's a way that we've been operating for the better part of four or five decades where shame is the operating system to, as you said, uh, turn the term government into a pejorative. Mm. No, I, I mean, it doesn't need to be that way. And it hasn't always been. This is a new thing for us. Yeah, well, the line that I use often from Martin Luther King, which is uh, timely because um, he was shot on April 4th, 1968. So that anniversary is just a couple of days ago. But mm -hmm. he said in this country, poor people get welfare and rich people get subsidies. And uh, it comes from the same pool. And even yeah. now, you know, we're seeing um, a really deep, there was an article in the paper this morning in the New York Times talking about the deep inequality of social distancing because the reality of it is that it's a privilege. And so yeah. if you're right. poor or in the city, you probably still are going to a grocery store or to Amazon and navigating around at a time when you should be home. And it just, again, goes back to the inequality we've been forced to deal with. And, and then you look at the fact that uh, it's almost uniquely unfortunate that during a pandemic, we have Donald Trump at the helm. Um, yeah. If you look yeah. at other crises in American history. You have Lincoln during the Civil War, which is almost angelic to me. It just seems yeah. uh, too good to be true almost that we would have that person at that time lead the country. Um, yeah. You could say the same for FDR during World War II. You know, he had to navigate 25,000 Nazis descending on Madison Square Garden 
in his backyard and still inspire America to, to fight a cause that they initially were unwilling to. Kennedy brought us off the brink of nuclear war. Obama brought us out of a great recession. We have a, a prolonged history now for the past 30 or 40 years of Democrats having to fix really severe problems caused by Republicans. Yeah. Um, and this is just another iteration of that. My only concern is, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, is will we be able to have an election that allows us as Democrats to win? I mean, here in Pennsylvania, we're still expecting, even in the primary on June 2nd, to have in-person voting. Um, yeah. I'm also sure that'll be the case, even if it is. I don't know how yeah. many people would be willing to risk their health to go vote. We don't have automatic vote by mail. How do you see this playing out just politically in terms of its impact on the election in 2020? Well, I've been saying um, privately to many for a few weeks now, say six weeks, that people that are in control now will not be in control, not by dint of a coup or an election, but by events. Um, this is going to turn into a very different situation very quickly. So the Prime Minister of Britain is now hospitalized. Um, I don't know when the last time anybody saw Rand Paul was. Um, we have so many members of Senate out that Mitch McConnell doesn't have a quorum. Um, that's that's the, the top-level surface issue of power in this country. But my point is, if the workers of Amazon to go on strike by friday of this week we would have medicare for all student loan forgiveness and ppe for every physician and nurse the power dynamic has shifted so dramatically to the actual essential employees that they're no longer do the people that were in charge just 60 days ago they aren't really in control they aren't really in charge they can't go to the store. There is a very pragmatic power shift that has already taken place, which I feel will continue to worsen or improve, depending on how you look at it. That has no, it's completely beyond the control of any of the previous power brokers heretofore, including the military. You know, we have a multi-billion dollar aircraft carrier with 4,000 men stuck in Guam and the captain is in the hospital. Every single, single state in this country is un, under attack. Every city is under attack. Every country on earth is under attack. None of the things that we took for granted a mere 45, 60 days ago are to be taken for granted. So just the fact that an election will come to pass on June 2nd, I'm not entirely willing to stipulate that that will come to pass, but already, our friends on the right are threatening to completely shut down the post office. Yeah, Scott they're, Perry they're, just yeah, ridiculed answer, the very idea of funding it. Yes, their their answer to this question is, all right, we just won't fund the post office. We'll fund the post, post office when it's one of the few means of conveyances for basic essential living. They're going to shut down the post office when Amazon.com and other mediums, they're most people are getting the things that they get right now through the Postal Service and FedEx and UPS. It's ludicrous. But that is the high stakes game of poker that we're all in right now, which I think 
hasn't even really begun. I mean, it feels bad now, but wait. Well, and that's, I guess that's my deeper fear is that, you know, we see this now globally, how the coronavirus has basically offered autocrats a chance to grab more power. Um, yeah. You know, Viktor Orban in Hungary passed an emergency decree that gives him plenary authority over the parliament. Um, yeah. He can sidestep them entirely and basically do as he pleases, just like Hitler could after the Enabling Act. Um, yep. We saw this in a different form after 9-11 with the Patriot Act, which is still being litigated on a constitutional yep. basis um, 20 years later. Uh, yep. And, you know, your point about Republicans wanting to shut down the post office and basically bring all the power further inward um, without a chance to overcome it from our perspective, you know, as citizens, I think is a real concern. Yeah, yeah I agree. And the, the sh it's all shifting and changing so quickly that I think um, any of any of those big moves that aren't wholly circumstance that acknowledge our mutual, you know, the sooner we get to that point, the better off we're all going to be where we don't regard ourselves as uh, enemy combatants in our own borders. You know what I mean? You know, Democrats, Republicans are getting sick at the same rate. The virus doesn't care. Yeah, um, and it, it even ties back to the Stitcher's Corps, right? I mean, this is yeah. uh, a group of people coming together regardless of party or political yeah. ideology or religion yeah. or race. And right. I think that can be the real takeaway from this whole experience is we see what happens in a crisis. This has happened in our history before. And a group like that coming together for the sake of, of society, I think, mm -hmm. can be carried over to the political sphere. Yeah, one would think. One would certainly hope. And that's where we're, you know, as the rate of deaths, rate of fatalities increases, and the number of high-profile deaths increases, it will hug on all of our souls similarly. We will all feel this loss. We won't be talking about hydroxychloroquine or whatever it is. We won't be talking about um, who, who sidelined the PPE. Why was it ordered so late? It won't matter. It simply won't matter. We're going to be in a position of, my God, my fellow Americans, everyone, we must rally. We must fight. And arguably look back and say, oh, yeah, there's an election in the Constitution to which we must return. Hmm. Somehow we must return to at least that much from the quote unquote before times. We had elections. How can we return to that central tenant of democracy? Um, I think we're all going to arrive at that point at the same time. Yeah, because if this crisis has shown us anything, it's that what happens when we have a real lack of leadership. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I actually think, I think Americans respond very well to candor and honesty and a yeah. cold, hard, sober assessment of the facts. And yeah. when you trust them to be brave enough to be told the truth, um, I think that could be a rallying cry for yeah. making real progress. Um, if if folks wanted to get involved with the Citrus Corps, uh, how can they do that? Good question. Um, I just typed into a, a Facebook search, Stitcher's Corps of Central Pennsylvania. I think okay. I called it the Sower and Stitcher's Corps of Central Pennsylvania on Facebook. Um, I have 
posted links on the campaign page, on my personal page, on Twitter. I was haranguing the governor on Saturday morning, trying to get his wife to join the Stitcher Corps. Any luck? Uh, not yet. <laughs> not that I'm aware of. It might be one of the 600 and some on there, though. Uh, you know, it's if we're not hard to find, and there's there are more than just us, as we've come to learn. There's a group in Lancaster. There's a group. Uh, you know, there's there's people all over doing this, and we invite them to join us and resist the temptation to over organize. I think if we over organize, we're going to alienate a lot of our stitchers who just don't want a label. They don't care. They just want to help people who need help. That's what they're doing, man. And we don't uh, we don't give anybody any quotas. We don't give them any. We don't do any uh, inspection or quality control or send it back. If it's no good, we give it out to our frontline healthcare workers and let them fight. So if you want to help come fight, type in Sower and Stitcher Score of Central Pennsylvania into a Facebook search and you'll find us. Well, it's, uh, it's refreshing to hear, Sean. This world needs, I think, a dose of hope like that and to see people in positions of public service uh, taking the time to launch initiatives like this and bring people together is, um, I think, the best story that you can have right now. So uh, keep fighting the good fight, my friend. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm sure I'll see you soon, but it's always great talking to you.